Well, I will say good morning one more time. And as you're having a seat, we just want to welcome you to New Life. And if you don't know me, my name is Brett Starr. I'm the Director of Student Ministries here. And uh, if you're a guest with us, we want you to hold on to that little thing you tore off of the worship folder and take it to the info counter when you're done, when we're done this morning, and we have a gift for you. Um, And also, if you look on the back part where you can check a little box that says I'm interested in something, one of those uh, at the bottom says praying for students attending a fall retreat. So we have a high school uh, fall retreat coming up November 16th, and each year we ask people to pray for the students who are going for the weekend. So if you want to check that box, put your name on it. Uh, I will get you some more information over the next couple weeks about what we're going to be doing and who's going and who you're going to be praying for. So we would love to see a lot of people praying for our students, especially I would. I would love that. So, all right, well, we are going to continue in Romans today. So if you want to open to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, this is a uh, very sobering passage and a very difficult one to, to hear and to think about. Um, because it is concerning a doctrine which is absolutely necessary for the proclamation of the gospel, and it's absolutely necessary for each and every one of us on a personal level when it comes to our salvation, and it's important for everyone that we interact with. The doctrine is the doctrine of sin. We don't like to talk about sin a whole lot, something we we might avoid at times because it is difficult and it's something that when we start to think about it we don't feel too good about ourselves and it's really hard if we're sharing the gospel with someone to say you know there's something else there's something called sin and to have someone recognize or even tell them that they're a sinner that's a tough thing So, in Romans 3, Paul is going to try to make an argument, again, that we're all sinners, and that we're all sinful. But I think if we look closer at what he says, he provides tremendous hope, even in these verses that don't seem to offer hope. So I'm going to pray for us, but as I pray, I want you to pray also. You can almost ignore me. And I want you to pray that God would use his word to do only what God's word can do. So we're told that the Bible is like a mirror. It shows us who we are. We're told it's two different kinds of swords. It's one sword that penetrates to our heart and shows us what's in our heart and shows us what's in our mind. It's another type of sword, the sword of the spirit, which helps us to fight against our enemy, Satan. We're told in Psalms that it's a a lamp and a light to guide us. It's something that we eat that's sweeter than honey. So the Bible is a lot of things. We're told in Psalms that it can keep us from sin. And that's what we're going to be talking about. So as I pray, I want you to pray that God's word would do its work in your own heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for you, thank you for your word, we thank you for the written word that points us to the living word of Jesus, 
And Lord, I just pray that you will let your word have its way in our hearts and in our minds, in our lives, in the lives of the people around us. And Lord, I just ask that you will just help us to see the tremendous hope that we have in you in spite of our sinfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you pull out your sermon notes, it might be apparent that I'm not a fan of fill-in-the-blanks, maybe. It's not true. But what I want you to do, it looks like there's just tons of lines there, which, which there are. Um, I want you to just listen and write down a few things that God says to you, okay? You can write down as much as you want. Uh, we're going to go through a lot of verses, so if, if, if you're, you know, you're going to have to be quick with your fingers turning pages today or, or on your device, but I want you to really listen, and if God is speaking to you through whatever it is he has to say, I'd like you to write that down, okay? And if you miss a few verses, it's okay. I can send them all to you, okay? So this is, uh, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of sin. This is going to be kind of like doctrine 201, maybe. But we're going to see what Paul has to say. So Romans 3, verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under, under sin. So in the previous chapters of Romans, Paul says we've already charged that everybody is under sin. He's, he's shown how the Jewish people have sinned because when God gave them the law through Moses, they broke it and they sinned. And then he said that he is, God's written the law on the hearts of the Greeks or the Gentiles, anybody who's not a Jew. And when they break that, they're sinning. So he says, we've already done that. We've already shown that. But he wants to show it again. He wants to take the idea of our sinfulness and go really deep with it. So we can't just say, oh yeah, it's those people who are sinful. Paul, in the letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature... And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul tells the Ephesians that we are by nature sinners. And at one point or another, he says we've all followed the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. We've all followed Satan at one point. We don't like that. We don't like to hear that. That's what he says. King David, in the book of Psalms, chapter 51, verse 5, says, Behold, I was brought forth, or born, in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David's saying that he can trace his sinfulness all the way back to his conception. That he was sinful from birth. We're conceived and born sinful, even. If anyone's a parent in the room, and we think about our children who were born, we don't have to teach them to sin, do we? We don't have to teach them when we put them like on a changing table that they don't like it. 
They don't like the authority we have over them. And we don't have to teach them when they don't like that, that they can make a mean face and they can arch their back. And they can risk, like, harm by trying to roll off of that changing table. They don't know all we're trying to do is keep them from sitting in their own filth. We don't have to teach a baby to sin. We don't have to teach a toddler to say no. We don't have to teach a five-year-old when we tell them not to do something that pretty much means they're going to do it. We don't have to teach them. God wants us to know that we aren't sinful because we sin. We sin because we're sinful. From the moment we're born, even from the moment we're conceived. So if God didn't think that was enough to show us that we're sinful by giving us kids <laughs> or by helping us to think through Maybe on our bed, you know, when we're laying there, that, boy, I'm just, I'm sinful. If he didn't think it good enough just for us to think about it and to give us kids to show us that we're sinful, he gave us the law. He gave us the law. So Romans says we're all under sin. It's something that's ruled over us since birth. But God wanted to prove to us, I think, and he wanted to make it so people couldn't say, well, I didn't know. You didn't tell me exactly what was wrong or what I should and shouldn't do. So he gave us the law, kind of like when we give the keys to our 16-year-old, which mine's coming real soon. We give him the keys to the car, right? What do we do? As good parents, we all add some law to it, don't we? Don't drive too fast. Just drive the speed limit. Don't have too many people in your car. Don't even think about touching your phone. All of those things, we give them law. I heard one parent this week, they have an app that shows you every turn the car takes. And if you pick up your phone in the car, it shows the parent. If you want to know what that is, I'll tell you when we're done. <laughs> so we give them law, and we hope also that some of it's in their heart. We hope that kid knows, I shouldn't speed, I shouldn't touch my phone, I shouldn't be crazy with people in my car. But what do we know? At some point, they're going to do something that we tell them not to do. We do that so our kids can't say, well, you didn't, I didn't know. You didn't tell me. So we tell them. Galatians 3.22 says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. It imprisoned everything and everyone under sin. So it leaves us with the only thing we can do is like grab onto the bars in front of us and say, I'm here. I'm sinful. There's no question about it. Back to Romans 3. I'm going to jump ahead to verses 19 and 20. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The whole world, every mouth, is going to be held accountable to God. Listen to verse 20. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. That's one of the biggest things that the law does. It shows us our sin. It tells us we're sinful when we might not think that we are. So God, imagine God, he's saying, okay, they don't get it. So I'm going to make it crystal clear. Here's 613 laws. Have fun with that. In James 2.10, we're told, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of it all. So our guilt as sinners, as it relates to the law, our guilt happens in one fell swoop when we mess up in one point. There's no going back. We're guilty of it all. So when we think about God's law when he gave it, I want to propose something to us all that hopefully will maybe clear something up. It cleared something up for me. And that is when Moses wrote down the law, both he, he knew, and the people shortly after he wrote the law, they knew without a doubt they wouldn't be able to keep it. And I believe that when the law was given, it was a foreign concept for them to think that they would ever be justified before God through obeying the law. Moses didn't write them all down and then say, all right, guys, let's go. We, gotta, let's, let's, we can do this. He didn't do that. They never believed they would gain salvation through obeying the law. It wasn't an option. Here's why. Number one, because Moses told them so. Imagine Moses writing down all the laws from God. So he didn't write down just ten. There weren't just ten. He wrote them all down. And I bet he's writing them down and he's thinking, holy cow, this is impossible. What are you thinking, God? We can't do all this. And then he actually says that. In Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 29 says this, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, so he wrote them all down, he's like, last period, I'm done. Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and he said, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. It's a witness against us. It's saying, you've done wrong. You've done wrong. You've done wrong. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I'm yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord. So imagine him, he's sitting there writing all these things down, and he's seeing the people like, oh, they're messing up on this one. Oh, those people, they're messing up on this one. What's going on? So even Moses, his idea of sin grew and grew and grew and grew. While he was writing down the law. He says, behold, even today while I'm yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? So he's thinking, oh, what is going to happen to these people when I die? They, what, they're just messing up without me. Or while I'm here, what are they going to do without me? He says, assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know... That after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I've commanded you. And in the days to come, 
Evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. That's what he said immediately after he copied down the law. He's like, you're going to fail. It's not going to work. So he was recognizing and he even prophesied all of the horrible things they were going to do because now he knew the law. It pointed out their sin. And he assured the people they were going to break it. So the second reason why I think the Israelites never thought they were going to have justification or salvation through obedience to the law is because of the law itself. It talked about intentional sins. It talked about unintentional sins. But then it said those could be atoned for through sacrifice. If God ever thought they could obey all of the laws, he wouldn't have given them the sacrificial system, but he did, assuring them, you're going to fail. But when you do, there's a plan. Galatians 3.21 says, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But there wasn't one. There wasn't one law that could make the people righteous. There wasn't one law that could give life. So from the beginning of even the law, it had always been a God who offered forgiveness of sin to those who repented and recognized the sacrifice that God set up. That was the plan. Now back to Moses for a bit. So he copies down all the laws, finishes it up, recognizes no one's going to obey it. And he ended by saying, that the days of evil are coming and God is going to be provoked in anger. So he could have just stopped there and tried to scare people into obedience. That doesn't work. It might work for a little bit. But he didn't stop there. He then starts to sing a song. So he's like, God's anger is coming against you. It's going to be horrible. Well, let me sing a song. He sings this long song. Which I won't grace you with today. So. So in Deuteronomy 32, right after he says all that stuff about the evil days are coming, in verses 3 and 4, he showed the Israelite people that his hope was not in himself. Moses was showing, my hope's not in myself. It's not in the people. His hope was in God. He says, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord. I'm not going to proclaim my name, Moses. I'm not going to proclaim the name of Israel, because that doesn't matter. He says, I will ascribe greatness to our God, not ourselves. The rock, his work is perfect. Because Moses recognized all of the Israelite people's works were not perfect. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness. God's faithful when we're not. And a God without iniquity, he is just and upright is he when we're filled with unrighteousness. So Moses was offering hope to the people through God, not through the law. So if you know anything about Moses and the Israelite people wandering around in the wilderness, you'll remember that they drank water from a rock. And in that song, Moses says, the rock... His work is perfect. In 1 Corinthians 
It says this about Moses and the people. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Even though during Moses' time, Jesus hadn't come and died and rose from the dead. Moses' hope was still in a God who could take something that was dead and make it alive so it could give life-giving water to his people. The rock. Jesus. That's what Jesus did. So even from the beginning of the law, God tried to make clear that people were going to fail, they were going to sin, but God is the one who can be trusted for salvation. A little little later on in Moses' song, he tells all of the fathers, he says something. He says, ask your fathers about God and what he has done. And when I read that, I thought about myself as a father. I thought about all of you who are fathers. And if our kids were to come up and say, tell me about God, Dad. Tell me what God has done for our family. Would we have a good answer? We need to have an answer. We need to have an answer. Now back to Romans chapter 3. In verses 10 through 18, Paul lays out more of an argument as to why all people are under sin. And he does this using the Old Testament. He uses the Old Testament to to prove that we're sinful. So Paul says, all are under sin. And then in verse 10, he says, as it is written. So right here, Paul says, as it is written. What he's doing, he's assuming the authority of the Old Testament. On himself. On other people, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says, as it is written, and then he quotes Psalm 14. And he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one. What my heart says is, that's not true. My heart says there are people who do good. There are people who seek after God. There are people who aren't worthless. Why is this saying that all people are worthless? We've got to look at Psalm 14 to understand that. If you turn to Psalm 14, verses 1 through 4. King David writes, the fool, or more accurately translated, the foolish, the foolish says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. Who? The foolish. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers, and this tells us who it is, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. Psalm 14 that Paul quotes is speaking about fools who don't acknowledge God exists. They're enemies of God's people. They eat up God's people, as it says. And God looks down and says, 
Are there any of them that understand? At the time that Psalm 14 was written, that simply meant it was talking about the Gentiles. The enemies of God's people who were surrounding them. Remember what Paul is trying to prove, that all are under sin, the Jews and the Gentiles. So he uses Psalm 14 to point out that the Gentiles are sinful. But then let's look at verse 5 in Psalm 14. It says, there they, those evildoers, are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Wait a second, didn't Paul just say there is none righteous? No, not one. But now this says God is with the generation of the righteous. That's a problem. I think this was written so people would say, well, who are the generation of the righteous then? Who is God with? And I think if we had four hours, which we don't, we could go through the whole Old Testament and we could walk person by person by person and we could see who the generation of the righteous were because Hebrews 11 tells us they walked by faith. They lived by faith, not by law. They lived by faith. And since the beginning of time, people have received salvation and eternal life. They've become part of God's people, part of the generation of the righteous, not because of their obedience, hoping that God would accept them. If I do good enough, then God will accept me. But it was through God first reaching down to them in grace and then people responding in faith. And then that faith is proven to be true faith through obedience. That's how it's been throughout the entire Bible. God didn't wake up one day and say, boy, this law thing, it just didn't work. I got to listen. Jesus, what should we do? We got to change plans here. He didn't do that. For all of time, people have become part of the generation of the righteous and gained salvation through faith. And then in Psalm 14, in verse 7, David cries out to God and he says something interesting. He says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. He's prophesying there and saying, salvation is going to come through Zion. We've got to figure out what Zion is. There's a few verses that we're going to go through. Zechariah 9.9. This is another prophecy. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Just like David was saying, salvation is going to come. Now Zechariah says, Your king is coming to you out of Zion, Jerusalem. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then if we fast forward to John 12, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Then in Romans 9, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks or more, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock, Moses, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him, that rock, will not be put to shame. Then in Romans 11, 
It says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When I take away their sins, God says. Not when they do enough to get rid of their own. Because God knows that's not possible. And lastly, in Revelation 14, when Jesus returns, John says, and then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Moses and David and Paul and John want us to understand we're all sinners. We're not going to keep God's law, but their hope was in the rock, the king, the deliverer, the lamb, the one who's going to come out of Zion. And we know that's Jesus. That's who they all had their hope in. They didn't have their hope in the law ever. Because they were told it wasn't going to happen. Now turn back to Romans 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. What do you mean no one seeks for God? I'm here, aren't I? People come here, don't we? To seek for God? But I think God would say, yeah, but not on your own. Jesus said in Luke 19, 10, For the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is seeking you, lest you think you're doing it on your own. Jesus is seeking you. Then he said, Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So before we're part of the generation of the righteous through faith, it's not we who are the ones seeking God. It's God drawing us, sending Jesus to seek us out. And we respond in faith. Back in Romans 3, in verses 13 and 14, Paul continues to make his point that we're all sinful by pointing out how we use our words. He cites a bunch of psalms again. Psalm 5, 140, and chapter 10, which I wish we could read through them all, and maybe you should. But he says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. If you think back on your life, maybe on the last week, how many of you have sinned with your mouth or your words? Five people. Wow. <laughs> I bet everybody... Maybe not over the past week, but we, don't we all have the ability to inject some poison into people with our words, whether we say them or we write them? We do. Jesus said to his followers in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. He also said in Luke 6.45 that out of the abundance or overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our mouth reveals our heart and what's in it. And I think the point of Jesus, the point of Paul using Psalms and quoting David and talking about our mouths and how horrible our mouths can be is to point out that we 
have the ability to sin even with our words. And everybody, we could all raise our hand and say, I've done that. And our words can condemn us as sinful people. You could also look at James 3. It's a whole chapter about how our lips get us in trouble. And we can set on fire everything by one little spark of our lips. And he says that at the same time we, we bless God and we curse people. And he says that shouldn't be. All people are under sin. We're sinful by nature from birth. It's proven through our actions, our attitude toward God, and our words. And his next argument for the universal sinfulness of humanity, that everyone is sinful, everyone you're at work with is sinful. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 59. Now Isaiah 59 was written to the Jews. All of the Psalms that he quoted earlier, those were all talking about the wicked Gentiles. Now he's getting to the Jews. And and Isaiah 59 is a wonderful chapter about God's hatred of sin, but it's also full of salvation. So turn to Isaiah 59, if you would, in verse 1. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities, your sin, have made your sins have made a separation between you and God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear it's pretty serious that's exactly what sin does it separates us from God it separated Adam and Eve from God it took them out of the garden our sin causes God to hide his face from us and he doesn't hear us In Isaiah 59, he goes on to list, oh, just so many sins against the Jewish people at that time. And Paul quotes some of those in in verses 15 and 17 of Romans 3. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood in their path. Paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Isaiah 59 goes on to indict the Jewish people of sin. And at the end of his indictment in verse 15 of Isaiah 59, he says that truth is lacking among the Jewish people. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So they lack the truth. And even the people who tried to do what was right, they were hunted down by the people who were doing evil. That's how bad it was. So the Gentiles are indicted of sin. The Jewish people are indicted of sin. And then Paul gives us one more thing to say, everybody is indicted by sin. And he he says that in Romans 3.18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul does this because he knows throughout the whole Old Testament that everybody, Jew, Gentile, and anything else, are told to fear the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord causes people to what? A couple things. Gain wisdom and knowledge. To turn away from evil to prolong their life, to find the knowledge of the true God, and to gain rewards from God. So Paul Paul proves we're all sinners. If we sit and think about it, we don't fear God on a daily basis. We don't live at peace with others. Our lips and words cause us to sin against others. 
even if they don't hear us. Our first desire is not to do good. It's not to seek God. It's not to walk in righteousness. But that's what God wants for us. He wants us to be part of the generation of the righteous who's recognized that there's a God. We're not foolish. And that he's reached down to us in grace. He's begun to draw us to himself. And he gave us Jesus so that we could have faith in a perfect sacrifice that all of those other sacrifices in the law were pointing to. And then God, what happens when we put our faith in Christ? Ephesians says it's God who wills and works through us for his good pleasure to accomplish the good works that he's prepared for us a long time ago. It's God. It's all of God. And Moses knew that. David knew that. Paul knows that. That's how it's been from the beginning of time. By grace, through faith. Not of ourselves. There was never a law that was given that could give life or that could give righteousness. I want to look at the end of Isaiah 59. So I told you that Isaiah ended his indictment of the Jewish people by saying they're, they're full of sinfulness and they lack the truth. And the people who try to do good, they get hunted down by the people who do evil. Now, again, just like Moses, I, Isaiah could have stopped there and tried to scare people into obedience. Bless you. But that doesn't work. He said this in the end of verse 15. And the Lord saw it, he saw their sin, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him, not the righteousness of anyone else. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head before we were even told to in Ephesians 6. He did it. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds. So he will repay what wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands. He will render repayment. So they shall what? Fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. That's the east. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And again, he could have ended there. But he didn't. He said, and, in verse 20, and what? A redeemer will come out of Zion, just like David said. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression. We already know who the redeemer is, who's coming out of Zion. We already know that's Jesus. We need to look at what Jesus said right when he started his ministry. In Mark 1.15, it says, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. All that stuff in the Old Testament, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. If you have a kingdom, you have to have a what? A king. He's saying, the king's here. Repent and believe in the gospel. And at that point, Jesus hadn't died 
yet. He hadn't rose from the grave yet. For all time, the gospel has been about who is God and what has he done for me. And putting your faith in that. And at this point, Jesus is saying, the king's here that David told you about, that Moses told you about, that Zechariah told you about. I'm here. So have you realized that you need a king? Have you realized that your own trying to be good enough so that when you get there, God says, boy, you did such a good job, I'm going to... I'm going to let you in. That's never worked. That's never been the case. It's never been God's idea. It wasn't his idea. And then he figured out another way. The law is there to point out our sin. So what sin are you dealing with? For a lot of us in the room who are Christians, there might be sin that we are entrapped in. That we need to confess. 1 John 1, 9 says if you confess to the Lord, he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Or maybe you just realize, I'm just a sinful person like everyone else and I need the grace of God. And I feel like God is drawing me and Jesus is seeking me out. And I need to put my faith in him. I want to be part of the generation of the righteous, not the foolish, who say there's no God. Maybe there's sin you just need to confess to someone else. The Bible also says that we confess our sins to each other so we can be healed. Healed of what? Healed of sickness when we know we feel guilt because of our sin. It's a healing thing. We... we, we Ask God's forgiveness or God to forgive our sin. And we confess to people so we can get healing. I think more people are sick than we know about it because of their sin that they don't want to confess or deal with. So when I'm done, you know, as always, there's prayer partners. As we've said many weeks, if you need to today just put your faith in Jesus and what he's done for you as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. They'd love to talk with you and pray with you and explain that even more to you. But maybe you just need to confess some sin to someone because it's good for you. It's healing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Jesus became sin on the cross so that in him, when we put our faith in him, It says, we might become the righteousness of God in an instant of faith. Just like in an instant of of disobedience to the law, we were guilty of it all. Well, in an instant of faith, we have the whole righteousness of Jesus put on us. And God views us as righteous from that point on. And it's him through us living that out. All of us need to know that Moses, David, Paul, everybody, they had their faith and trust in a rock, redeemer, king, Jesus, who was going to come or who had already come. 
And that's where they got their salvation, not through trying to obey a bunch of rules. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, a difficult passage uh, that tells us about who we are. Lord, help us, those of us who are believers, part of the generation of the righteous through faith, help us to, with your help, help us to seek you. Help us to do the good works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. But Lord, help us to never rely on those works for our salvation. Thank you that Jesus was perfect and he was a perfect sacrifice for us. And Lord, I just pray that um, if someone in here feels like God is drawing them to put their faith in Christ for the first time, that you'll give them the courage to walk up to one of the prayer partners or someone else and just say, I'm a sinner and I, I need Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who do know you through faith, I pray that you will Help us to be willing to confess our sin to you, God, first, to cleanse us from unrighteousness, but also help us to have the courage to confess our sin to each other so we can be healed. And I pray that today you'll bring a lot of healing. I pray that you'll bring a lot of um, uh, rid us of our shame and our guilt when we confess our sin. And Lord, I just thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name.